When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 11, episode 44. This is Writing Excuses, Project In-Depth, Ghost Talkers. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And, uh, warning, spoilers. (laughs) If you haven't listened to one of these before, these are generally long episodes. We'll go a little longer on this one. Where we dig into a story a great deal, and we reveal all the nitty-gritty details about it. I'm sorry, let me deliver that warning just a little bit differently. I read Ghost Talkers on the plane, and I will be broken-hearted if you let me spoil this book for you. <laughs> Got it? Okay. All right, so, Ghost Talkers, Mary! All right, so, um, this is the pitch that I gave, and I'm starting with this so you know. There, there's the difference between the pitch that is on the catalog copy and the pitch that I gave when I sold it. The pitch on the catalog copy is basically Battle of the Somme, 1916. The British Intelligence Department has a group of mediums called the Spirit Corps. When soldiers die, they report in and they're getting instant troop updates. They find out there's a traitor. That's the, way I, that's the way the catalog copy goes. The way I pitched it is 1916, Spirit Corps, Mediums. My main character's fiancé reports in dead, and she spends the rest of the novel trying to solve his murder, knowing that when they together complete his unfinished business, he will go away to be on the veil. So that is the emotional core of the story, and I have worked very, very hard to keep that out of any catalog copy. Yeah, so if you didn't listen to our spoiler warning, ha-ha! <laughs> so there goes the inciting incident. Right. Well, and what, what I love about this novel is that that's the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the way you have got the, uh, the first chapter, kind of the establishing shot of the book, it sets up all of these things. And, you know, me as a writer, I read that and I'm like, oh, she's going to do this and she's going to do this and she's going to do this. And I thought they were going to be like third act stuff and they're like third chapter stuff. Right. The and mic drop happens it, right it there. It was fantastic because suddenly... It, it fulfilled all of its promises so early and then went on into even more interesting stuff. And it, it was great. Thank you. And one of the things that was hard about this is it's obvious, you know, to a writer, it's obvious that I'm going to kill him. Yep. Trying to figure out a way to not telegraph how soon I was going to kill him and also giving him enough stage time so that you cared when he died. Because having him die in the first chapter, that's, yeah. you, you don't care. 
So making the reader, tricking the reader into thinking and believing that Ben was going to be a main character all the way through the book, and he is because he sticks around as a ghost, but tricking them into thinking that that, that, uh, that death is not going to come towards the end was, was really hard. And one of the things that I did with that was that I, I realized I was, I was looking at why when I'm watching a book or a film or something, I, I know that the character's going to die. And, and you do. You're like, oh, that character's dead. They're totally going to be fridged. And I realized it was because those characters had story arcs that were very clean. And that they existed only to interact with the main character. And they didn't look like they were going to serve any other function in the story. The thing that I think you did, uh, and maybe this was deliberate, maybe not. I'm just going to chalk it up to deliberate because you're that good with the craft, was Norris's murder. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. when, when Norris is murdered, Norris was the character who the night before uh, mm-hmm. got punched out by the fiancé for uh, saying very inappropriate things. And he reports in dead, and, and the fiancé is under suspicion. And I realize, oh, you don't have to threaten the fiancé with death. You can threaten the fiancé with discrediting this may be a completely different story than I thought it was. Oh, shit, he is dead. <laughs> uh, yes, that was actually intentional. You did it. Yes, you did. Okay, so I'm going to bring this other thing. We're on this topic, though. Okay. One of my favorite moments was when I felt sorry for him. Um, yep, for Norris. And I brought this out in my review of Ghost Talkers, and I couldn't state it specifically because I didn't want it to be spoilery, but those little moments of... I assume this was intentional, too, mm-hmm. um, of saying, oh, this guy's a slime ball. Now you see through his eyes, and you're like, oh, he feels bad about being a slime ball. I like him. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Like, those moments were so good. And, and the line that sold that particular thing for me was, you know, when he was talking to her as a ghost and saying, yeah, he, he almost beat me up, but I was trying to get beat up anyway. Yep. And that line just snapped him into focus as a character. So authentic. And yeah. so relatable. It, it is a thing that, we, that I've talked about um, on, on one of the other podcasts about figuring out who the character wants to be and, and who they are. And one of the things that happened for me during the course of researching this was that I read a lot of first-person accounts from, peop- from men who went to fight at the Battle of the Somme and survived. And the amount of survivor guilt, but also the amount of um, emotional introspection that they were doing between who they thought they were before the war and who the war had turned them into made me realize that 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 was happening to every single character in that novel. That there is the person that they were before the war, and then there is the person that they are now, and there is the person that they would like to be, and they can't in that moment. And... One of the things for me about Norris in particular is that, and, and I think the reason that that scene works is because you can see who he wants to be and he will never have a chance to do that because he is dead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was so good. Thanks. Mm-hmm. All right, Dan, I cut you yeah, off. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask another. Uh, so one of the other things that helped misdirect me mm-hmm. into thinking that Ben's death would come late in the book was the the first chapter sets up the idea that if a medium kind of leaves their body too much, 
that it becomes hard to come back and, and it becomes enticing for them to leave and move beyond the veil. And so what that told me was, okay, he's going to die at the end and the big conflict will be that she wants to go with him. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the conflicts. But the I, I was not expecting you to break those two pieces up so one comes at the end and one earlier. Uh, and so that worked very well. Well, thank you. What, um, was that intentionally a form of misdirection? Yeah. There, there were a number of things that I was doing to try to misdirect. One was that, uh, uh, Ginger's desire to go, to go with Ben. The other was um, that I tried to set up a relationship conflict between them, um, which is that he wanted to be, uh, he wanted to be very protective so that it, it looked like the the thing that was going to be happening between them was uh, a a, uh, a tra- not a tragically flawed relationship but a, a broken relationship and that 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 desire for her to go with him at the end was going to be related to that uh, that that relationship conflict. Okay, I got a different question. Yeah, different different um, direction on this. I was surprised by how little of a horror story this was, despite de- dealing with ghosts. There were moments. The moments where Ben Poltergeist and things like this, or when you see him, some of the descriptions go into horror, but they were like a seasoning here and there. For a story about mediums and ghosts and war, there was very little horror. I, and I actually found that refreshing. I thought it might have been mud- it might have muddled it too much. That was, again, something that came out of the primary research that yeah. I did. One of the, the most... Uh, compelling texts that I read was um, a Diary of a Nurse at the Front, uh, which w- was literally a transcription of a diary. And she was at the Battle of the Somme, and they would get, she would have these diary entries where she would talk about this train load of soldiers who had been hit by mustard gas and were literally coughing up lungs. Mm. You know, just, just and, and the, the chemical burns on them, or, or soldiers, just... It, horrific injury after horrific injury. And in the same diary entry, she would talk about how they had gotten permission to go to the gardens at this nearby estate and how the peonies were in bloom. And what I realized between her and uh, the men talking about these things is how normalized the war had become for them. And they had become so desensitized to it. So that's one of the reasons that it doesn't feel like a horror story is because my primary character, my my point of view character, is desensitized. She's not having a horror reaction. The scariest moment for me was when she explores and exploits her power as a medium to mess with our bad guy. And tortures his poor brain and you know and and true to horror stories uh, part of the fear is not that you'll die but that you'll become something that I as a reader can no longer can no longer love and part of it is that boy I really want her to score on this guy but this is a terrible terrible thing she is doing um, that moment took all of the desensitizing that you know, you know that I could see you know with the with the characters throughout the book and stripped it away and and used it as a uh, as a pokey stab in my eye. Sorry, that metaphor fell really flat. <laughs> well, I mean, there was a lot of pokey stabbing because there was that that scene had the knitting needles in the eye. It did. Yeah. So, well, you know. <laughs> 
she was she was going in and manipulating somebody's nightmares. Um, but yeah, I, that is for me one of the the horror things is that moment when uh, when the character begins to become something else. And and I think one of the reasons. Um, that the the Ben's poltergeisting read more as horror is because that is a deviation from her normal, um, right? And and she's right. not. And she is mm-hmm. not in a horror story in her mind, even though there are elements that we would consider horrific because even ghosts are normal to her. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and the the reason I think that the the poltergeist scenes worked as horror because. The fact that there is a poltergeist and things are moving on their own, that's not scary because we can see the ghost and we understand the ghost. What's scary is, oh, no, Ben's going to lose it, mm-hmm. and he's not going to be Ben anymore. Yeah. And, and, and that's what makes it frightening. Yeah, which is, you know, for, for readers, that the technique that I'm using there is, is getting into what matters to the character. Had she been terrified of the, the movement of the papers, I would have written those scenes in very, very different ways. Mm-hmm. But I'm focusing on what matters to her, yeah. which is a trick I learned from Jane Austen. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So let's stop for a book of the week, which is actually not Mary's book, because we did that last week, and you should have read it sure by now. Sure hope you already have it. So, um, Whoops. Dan. Yeah, so this week we're going to talk about an actual straight-up horror story that I read recently, which is Hex by Tomas Oldehuvelt. Uh, he's a Dutch author and is, you know, a, a really big deal over there. He brought this book back. Um uh, he, he brought it to America, and not only did they do a language translation, but he took the chance to do a full cultural translation of it. And so instead of taking place in the Netherlands, it takes place in New England. And he, uh, so it's really kind of a 2.0 version. Uh, it is a fantastically terrifying uh, story about a ghost who, or, or a witch who has been around for 350 years with her eyes sewn shut and is basically haunting a town and it is in many ways a horror dystopia novel 
as you watch the way the town has contorted itself to deal with the fact that there is a witch there. Uh, it, it, it is a, just a beautifully dark and wonderful novel. I was rooming with Dan at DragonCon when he was reading this, and he was just glued to it and gasping and things like this. Like, it really made me want to read the book. Yeah, and, and I have to admit, uh, we, we have... When we had Robin Hobb on the show, and I don't know if that episode is, has aired yet, it's a, it's a bonus episode, she talked about the same novel. It's that good that I wanted to talk about it twice. So, mm. All right. Um, so I'm going to pitch you another question because I have the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have told you before um, earlier this week that my favorite thing about Ghost Stalkers, hands down, was how by the end you made me want Ben to move on. And I knew as I was reading the story, you would have to, this would, you'd have to stick because as being me, I totally want the woman and her ghost boyfriend solve crimes. The series, <laughs> right? Like, this is totally the, the sort of thing that Brandon loves. Um, and it's the sort of thing that Brandon would write, right? Um, and so I knew that you probably weren't going to do that. Um, just because the rules you set up, this would be a gross violation of, of the rules of the setting. And I knew that I, by the end, had to want him to go. And at the end, it was heartbreaking, but I was like, oh, I'm so glad. It was, almost, it was the moment you have, if you've ever had this moment with a loved one, um, I had this with, with one of my grandmothers, where at the time where she passed away, instead of being tragic, it was, okay, it's time I am glad that, that you are getting this piece. And I felt that for Ben. Oh, good. Um, and that was a lot of what was driving that was, um, you know, uh, I'm going to hope that my mom is not listening to this episode. Um, n- n- not just because it will be painful for her. Um, Grandma lived to be 109. And she was sharp. She could still thread a needle at 103 um, at 105, she was still living on her own. Um, but the last four years were rough. And the last year of her life, she had lost her sight. She had outlived two of her children. She had outlived her younger sister. She had lost much of her hearing. Her mind was still sharp, but she could no longer interact with people. And she was ready to go. And she's, she, she is, she was, is deeply Christian, um, very powerful spiritual belief. And she was, kept saying, I don't understand why he hasn't taken me home. And when she finally got to die, I was so happy for her because she, she got to go home. And so what I tried to do when I was writing that scene and, and building toward sorry for those of you not watching video I am getting choked up um, what I was trying to build for there was the sense that Ben was getting the peace that he deserved and it worked Good. It was absolutely my favorite moment. It worked on both sides of that coin. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not. Wa- I mean, I I wanted Ben to stay, and I knew that Ginger wanted there to be a way for Ben to stay, and my meta storyteller knew that if 
you Disneyed it or, or branded it. And they <laughs> oh, don't do that. I've had characters die too. <laughs> I know you have. You, it would, um, yeah. But if, if you had done that, then their victory would mean less. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so when he left, yes, I was overjoyed that, uh, that he was getting to move on, but I recognized that this was a triumphant sacrifice and I was allowed to feel bad and love it at the same time. Um, well, and that's the point that I want to make, kind of as a general advice thing, is really some of the... Think, think about the moments in books and in movies that really, really get you, that are emotionally very powerful. Often what is happening is that you're feeling two conflicting emotions at mm-hmm. the same time. You're feeling sadness that he's leaving, but also joy that he gets to move on, yeah. you know? And those don't seem like they should be able to coexist because they are in opposition to each other. But you do feel them. You know, well, I, I, I remember a scene, and I can't remember what it's from, where, where a daughter and her mother are talking about how they want to stay together, but they can't stay together. And, you, you know, you're so happy that they have this moment, but you're so sad that it's going to be their last moment. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of scenes are so powerful. Go ahead. It's for me. It's about the the size of the hole that the character leaves in the person's life that stays behind. Um, but also, uh, one of the things again, technically, that I was doing was that I was telegraphing all the way through that this was the goal that they were working for. That Ginger was working, even though she did not want, she wanted Ben to stay but that she knew the price of him staying and so that she was working the entire time towards him towards him leaving. Um, mm. and, and much like one of the reasons that I was happy for Grandma is that she had stated so many times how ready she was to go. Uh, so that, that, I think, is one of the techniques that you can use when you're, you're working towards something like that is to make it clear that, you know, this is the goal that we're working towards. Okay, so I have a question. Mm. Um, stepping, stepping away from the, the story elements and the, the meta and, and all of that, um, you, I have this sense that the book succeeds not just because you crafted a good story, but because you dug into this thing and laid line-level craft onto it over and over and over again. Is, is that... No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, th- there are places, uh, absolutely places. The, um, the opening uh, got a lot of work um, because I'm introducing a ton of characters uh, because it is a, an ensemble thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other places where that would be accurate. Um, but, but this is, uh, thank you for thinking that. Um, well, and it's possible that you've uh, internalized a well, lot of what I describe as line level. Yeah, well, and that's what I was going to say is that the, the thing that we, we talk about all the time on the podcast about practicing something over and over and over again until you can do it, uh, until you've internalized it, is that, that I have practiced a lot of those things. Now, there are places, in the no- number of places in the novel where what I did was I was like, okay, I'm going to work on the emotional thing. Um, ginger said, you know, ginger body language. Ben, what are you doing? Body language. And, and I would literally put brackets, body language. And then I came back and, and was more specific about it. The other thing that I do, and again, this is a line level thing, is that I allow myself to, um, 
to, to use shorthands, I, I know as a writer that my characters tend to look uh, and they tend to breathe. Uh, they tend to smile, nod, and blink. Those are the body language pieces that I overuse. And I, I'm like, I know that I do that. So what I do is I let myself do that, and then I have a list of words. Um, and I tell you what, uh, we will attach that list of words. Right on. Into the liner notes. I have a list of words that I know I overuse, and I do a find on them. And what I do is I go back and I look for something that is more specific to the scene uh, that allows me to, and, and specific to the character's emotional state in that scene as well. You know, um, on this topic, before we get to Dan's question, um, I do the same thing. I found a tool that works really well for this is I turn on track changes, mm. then I do a search and replace for the word or phrase with brackets around it, and it will can change only the that phrase in the brackets, so that when I get, then I do a revision, and I can see sometimes I still want to use that word or phrase, but they jump out at me um, in a different color, yeah. so I can see that I'm using That's one of these things I do very frequently. It's very nice. That is a really good trick. The uh, one thing that I'm going to flag for readers is when I'm talking about this find-replace thing, and, and, and Brandon is as well, I think, um, that when I'm looking for, you know, I know that I overuse the word look. I don't replace it with gaze, glance, what I do is I replace it with a different piece of body language. What is another thing that my character would be doing in that moment? Yeah. Right. So yeah. we're going long, but, but we're going long on purpose. We haven't even t really talked about the magic yet, the, oh, the right. details of the spiritualism. And you do such an incredible job with this. And one of the things I loved about it was kind of al almost as a side effect of the way the spiritualism works the mediums are also all empaths because they can read emotions by color. And so my first kind of basic question is, did you work out beforehand a spectrum of emotional colors? Um, no, and yes, all at the same time. Okay. Um, uh, there is a book that I was using. I'm going to get the, the, the main title wrong. Um, but it, it's something to the effect of, um, it's a book from 1928, uh, how to improve your psychic powers. That's not, that's not quite mm -hmm. the title. It's pretty close to it, though, uh, by um, beautifully named author, Hereward Carrington. Seriously. I need to have another really? child just yes. to use that name. <laughs> right? Um, so, and it is, it is all about auras, and uh, so I used that. But I couldn't remember them frequently. And so there are times when I would say, and his aura flared color, mm -hmm. <laughs> or I would just put down whatever color I was feeling in that moment. Um, and, you know, I was an art major, and so there are certain cultural connotations to color. So I would just put down whatever I was feeling, and I tried to go back and fix it. And then my copy editor, who is um, a saint, uh, went through and for the um, the the... Continuity thing. pass? The, the, not the continuity pass, the um, style guide. The style guide has oh, a wow. list of all of the colors and the emotions that they are Man. attached to. She earned her paycheck she, on that one. So that's Lauren Hogan. So convenient for a sequel. So convenient <laughs> for a sequel. Oh, you have no idea how happy I was to see that. Um, so there were a number of places where I had to change them to fit, uh, to, to be accurate, 
um, accurate to, <laughs> to be <laughs> accurate to my own consistent. Uh, so Beer word Carrington would be proud. He would. He would be um, very proud. Well, and, and one of the things I liked about it was that they were not just colors, but that there was there was texture to them as well. My mom uh, has synesthesia and connects colors to words. And one of the things that she points out is that, you know, a letter is not necessarily just yellow. It's metallic yellow or it's fuzzy yellow. And you have... It's rarely just a color in your book. It's it's a hazy color or it's a sharp color or, you know, there's always something extra. Yeah, I decided that one of the things about the spirit world is that since you're no longer connected to a physical form, that you would ex- – that there was uh, not a filter happening uh, that was forcing you to experience things on only one channel – and so they're experiencing things on, on a lot of different channels. I think at one point I talk about cinnamon red. Um, and, and it's not that it looks like cinnamon red. It's that it's, it is red that smells like cinnamon. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wrap us up here with one last question. That's kind of a bigger one. Um, I know that you did some plot work with Dan in a brainstorming session for this book. And I would like you guys to talk about that a little bit and how it worked, how it helped. I think that'll be useful to our listeners. Yeah, so Dan probably does not remember this quite so much. It was it was at one no, of the it early... Was, it was at uh, the second writing retreat yeah, that we did. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I was struggling with was uh, was partly the, the question of um, how to disguise the fact that I was going to kill Ben. The other thing that I was struggling with was um, how to make how to make the front part of the novel move until I got to the point where I killed Ben. Because as I said, I, it, you know, as we've talked, it is, it is the inciting incident. But in order to make you care about Ben, I needed it, – it's actually chapter six that I kill him. Mm-hmm. So I needed, I needed basically five chapters of, of filler and how to keep it from fil- feeling like filler, how to keep a plot that was moving in that first part – and so the thing that Dan was helping me with um, was he was using his seven-point plot structure, which I is not something that I have. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's, it's not a thing. I think I'm the only one. I talk about it all the time, but I think I'm the only host uh, that uses it regularly. And really what we did is we sat down with the outline that she had worked out and kind of reverse engineered it. What would the seven points be? Mm-hmm. And realize at that point it became glaringly obvious there was no pinch one. Yeah. Uh, and pinch one is defined as not the inciting incident, but a bad thing that happens that forces the characters into action. Yeah. They, and that, they have cool things, they have cool powers, they have cool knowledge. Now they have to use it yeah. because something has happened. And and the the specific moment that came into the story that was not there is the death of Norris. That was yep. not in the original outline. Uh, and it was specifically because of the conversation. I, I had someone dying. I knew that mm-hmm. there was a death, uh, but I didn't have it being um, someone that they had had encountered before, um, and I didn't have it being quite so directly tied to the the spy plot line. I love this because it's a real world example of something that I tell my students a lot, which is in the moment. I'm not always using all these tools we talk about on writing excuses. Mm -hmm. I'm doing things by gut and instinct. But during outlining and, most importantly, when something is wrong, that's when I go back to these tools and say, what is wrong? What is my elemental genre? What is the plot structure I'm working with? And those tools fix problems so well. And I often do it with other people. Yeah, absolutely. That that saves me multiple times. And it, it is... 
it's very comforting to realize that, you know, your reader is only ever going to see the finished draft unless you decide to show it to them in other... In a pie safe. In a pie safe. <laughs> um, but... Uh, That's an inside joke for people who have attended a writing excuses retreat <laughs> and or cruise. Yes. Um, but so you can, you can, you know, futz around and try a lot of different things. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the trivia things is, um, there's a character who does not appear in my outline at all. And that is Mrs. Richardson. Who's my favorite. And you're so mean. (laughs) She is nowhere in the outline at all. Um, and this is a, this is a, a character who winds up being fairly major. Uh, and... I was convinced she, there was something sneaky with her because she felt so major in a small, in like hinting way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved her. And I'm like, Mary's not going to make me love this person without her being evil at the end. And then I was wrong, <laughs> and it was that you you killed her instead. Yes. Um, but uh, I was I was happily wrong with that one because I thought it was for me a nice twist when it when what happened happened. And what was nice is, at the time, it felt like just this is what happens on the front of the war, which I was ready for without knowing it. Yeah. Because it reinforced that this is a dangerous place. Yeah, and that was that is an example of you know we, we talk about how that that uh, outlining to uh, discovery writing is very much a spectrum, and this is this is really an example of of something that I discovery wrote because I. I knew that I needed to do something that would make the horrors of war personal. And it worked. It was important. I do think I'm going to call this here. Uh, we could probably talk for another hour about this book. It is awesome. Thank you. You guys should all go read it. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, you should really listen to it because I loved listening to if it. If I can offer a quick takeaway, mm-hmm. uh, often, reader, you will read something that you will find discouraging because it's just that good and you can't imagine anybody brilliant enough to have done this. Um, in listening to this podcast, what we've seen is that after three or four passes, applying craft, going and getting help and talking to people, yes, Mary can be that good. (laughs) And that's the sort of thing that we want all of you to be. That's why we present these tools. That's why we have the conferences, uh, because, because it takes this kind of work to make something like that. Any final words, Mary? No, I think that that what Howard said is is spot on. It's understand, and the reason we do these project in depths is really understand that you should not judge your first draft by someone else's finished draft, nor when you're working on a later book or a later project, should you judge your first draft on your own finished work. And those are words to live by as a writer. So this has been Writing Excuses. Thank you, Writing Excuses Cruise, for listening. These are the souls who have read the book, because we didn't we sprang this on them. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of the room had to leave to not get spoiled. Um, this has been Writing Excuses, and you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.